The evidence is all around us, no matter where you go. I go into my alley just about every day, and I find trash in the alley. And it's usually a plastic top from a paper cup. Maybe it's a package from one of our fast food stores. I go to Best Buy and I pull in the parking lot there from the night before somebody has been eating and they've left the residue of their fast food sitting in, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? I go to our storage unit, <clears throat> get in the elevator and see the remnants of somebody's, I'm not gonna mention the different kinds of meals, but you know what they are. Fast food, everywhere and the remnants of it. We live in a fast food society, don't we? but I don't think we realize just how pervasive it is. Statistics show that 37% of Americans each day eat fast food. Now, the way I calculate that, that means that every American probably every week eats about two and a half fast food meals. Every American spends about $1,200 a year on fast food. America is defined by it, really. It's a $330 billion industry. What's really telling about that is, and the American nature of the fast food industry, even though it's around the globe, is that the American fast food industry comprises a third of the global fast food in its entirety. And of course, there's some problems with that. We know. We all eat it, and we know what we're dealing with when we eat it. Fast food is not particularly high in nutrition usually, but it is high in what? Calories. Trans fats, sugar, salt, processed preservatives, causes health problems, obesity, insulin resistance, which one of the ads that I see repeated over and over and over and over on TV say that that's the key to losing weight is to stop that. Diabetes, cardiovascular disease, indigestion, inflammation, problems with our immune systems, brain inflammation. There's some evidence that too much fast food and the fats and the sugars slow down neuron production and may even cause memory and learning problems. In Australia, there has been a survey that says wherever people live near fast food restaurants, there's a higher incidence of heart disease. And every time another fast food restaurant is established there, the statistics show that the heart disease rate increases. It promotes isolation to some degree because folks stop and get something to eat, go this way, go that way. They don't eat together as a family as much as they used to. Kind of balkanizes the family. A very telling st statistic is that 20% of all the meals in America are eaten where? Where do you think? in your car. Isn't that amazing? What happened before the car was invented? Where did we eat? So why do we eat fast food? Why do we eat fast food? What does that have to do with, you know, harvesters going into the field? Well, first of all, easy access. How many fast food places do you think there are in this country? Well, this is probably a low number, but over 200,000. Eight of them are right down the street from me, and they weren't there about four years ago. I have to pass by all of them whenever I go home, whenever I leave, you know. It's cheap, 5 to $10 for a, a meal. It's speedy. You should be served 
even at some of your most popular chicken places. Okay, you know what I'm talking about. You see the line that always goes out from one of our most popular chicken places that is a, uh, an establishment run by some of our Christian brothers and sisters. You should be served in 10 minutes. Fast food is highly palatable. What that means is it's not only tasty, but it breaks down quickly in the mouth and it sends immediately, it sends pleasure signals to the brain for satisfaction. And it creates a habit in us that frankly causes us to desire whole food, healthy food, less. We know, we know it's better to eat healthy food, to eat whole food, salads, greens, a balanced diet prepared at home. We understand that. The same is true in our spiritual lives. But you see, we live in the fast lane, and that's one reason that fast food is so popular. We live in the fast lane in America, and fast food, or what we call maybe junk food, it's not all junk. And folks, I I eat it too, okay? But fast food is really a metaphor for where we are in all of our life. And not just in America, but the world today lives in the fast lane. You see, what we settle for is that which we crave, which is easy to get, which is cheap and doesn't cost much, which is speedy, very tasty in the eyes of the world, and is extremely habit-forming. So today we're going to be looking at a passage from John, the sixth chapter, where Jesus warns us against that. The setting is this in John. It's after John 5 and before John 7. So where do you think we are? We're in John 6, of course. In John 5, Jesus has made his second trip to Jerusalem at a feast of the Jews, and he's healed a lame man. And this has caused many of the religious leaders to pursue him and want to kill Jesus because he is healed on the Sabbath, and he also claims then that God is his what? His Father. And so they say, this then says that you're making yourself equal to God. And they begin to pursue him and seek to kill him. And it's before then another feast. It's interesting. This passage about food is between two feast days of the Jews. We don't know what the one was in chapter 5, but we do know that the one in chapter 7 then is the Feast of Booths when he returns to Jerusalem then for a third time. In the Synoptic Gospels, the background is found in Matthew the 14th chapter, Mark the 6th chapter, and Luke the 9th chapter. And there we know what's happened. The disciples that have been sent out, the 12 have been sent out, they have been gone into Galilee, they've finished their mission, they've reported back to Jesus, and they've had surprisingly good results in some places, but not so good results in other places. And Jesus has rebuked those that have not received the miracles of the apostles and his miracles. Cities like Chorazin and Bethsaida, where some of the disciples are from, Philip and Andrew and Peter are from that little town, and, and even Capernaum. John the Baptist has been baptized, uh, not baptized, he's been beheaded. And as a result, of course, Jesus and the disciples have retreated across the sea, just outside in a kind of remote place outside of Bethsaida. The crowds have pursued them to that solitary place. And you know what has happened in Matthew, the 14th chapter. Jesus has fed the 5,000. And that's the background of the beginning of chapter 6 here. The crowds have pursued him, and he sees them, and he has compassion on them late in the afternoon, and he feeds them with five loaves and two fish. And then John's gospel tells us, and we're not going to read that from John's gospel today. We're going to skip over that. But John's gospel says that they then want to make him king. 
and they pursue him. And he escapes then into the hill country. And then in the evening, in the early hours, as he's up on the hillside, as he sent his disciples in on ahead to go back across the sea, they encounter a strong headwind, and Jesus goes out and walks on the water to them. And they are scared to death. And Jesus approaches and said, take comfort, be of good courage. It is I, do not be afraid. And one of the gospel accounts tells us it's then when Peter dares to step forward from the boat and he, he starts out and he's going okay until he takes his eyes off of Jesus and he begins to sink and Jesus rescues him. And then Jesus says, why do you have such little faith? Why do you doubt? You see, when we pray, Jesus tells us by the fig tree, we must pray doing what? Pray believing with no doubt. Well, we all have doubt. Peter doubts and he begins to sink Then Jesus arrives at the other side near the plain of Gennesaret. That's just south of Capernaum. It's north of Magdala, from where Mary Magdalene probably was habitated, and just north of Tiberias. It's a very fruitful plain, plains of grain and also orchards, vineyards. It's very rich and fertile. And Jesus then begins to talk to the crowd that comes to him. You see what's happened. They have pursued him. And we'll read that account in just a moment. You see, this, I believe, this chapter 6 is the first full proclamation of the gospel in the gospel of John that's been recorded. Now, I've carefully worded that. He shared the gospel to some degree with Nicodemus, but that was privately. And of course, we always refer to John 3.16 when we speak about the gospel. He has shared the gospel to some extent with the extent with the Samaritan woman. And he has told her, I am. I am the Messiah that you expect. But that was with her individually. Now, John has not recorded what happens then when the villagers come from Sychar. We know that there was a revival there. But it's not until we come to the sixth chapter that we have a full proclamation of the gospel in a public setting. He has summarized the gospel in chapter 5, verse number 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. So there is the kernel of the gospel, and what Jesus is going to do is he's going to take that kernel of the gospel in chapter 6, and is it going to explode it into a full-blown feast. I would parallel John 6, basically to Matthew 5 through 7. The Sermon on the Mount in Matthew is his great exposition on the ethic of the kingdom. John 6 is Jesus' public proclamation of the gospel of the euangelion. So, would you stand with me as we read a segment of what is listed in the bulletin? We're going to begin with chapter 6, verse 22, and go through 27. So this is after the feeding of the 5,000. It is after he has sent his disciples across the sea, and it's after he has landed at Gennesaret. The next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat, small boat there, except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias, near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, 
Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered them and he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. May God honor the reading of his word. Let's have a seat. I'm not going to read the rest of the sixth chapter, but I want us to derive some things that happen after this into the gospel which Jesus proclaims. And in this passage, we see two or three things that are very important. And you'll understand why I was talking about fast food. First of all, he says, don't focus on the fast food. Don't focus on the food that spoils. And that being a metaphor for our life, he's saying, don't focus on the fast things. Don't focus on the easy things. Don't focus on the habit-forming things. Don't focus on the worldly things that are transitional that pass away. He also says here that, you know, God cares for all of your needs. The daily needs, but he also cares for your eternal needs. And then in this passage we just read, he says, what you then need to do is understand that you should work for the food that endures. That's what you should be toiling for. Don't focus on the food that spoils, he says, first of all. So this is perishable food. He says, you know, you come to me not because you've seen the signs and because you've seen the miracles, and you begin to see through those that I am someone not just different, but I am the Messiah who has come that can perform those things. You don't come for the signs. You don't come for what I am teaching. What you come for is to be fed, to be filled. And that word fill means, it's the same word that is used to to feed cattle, to be filled with herbs and grass and hay to fatten the animals. It's it's not substantial. It, you see, causes you, in fact, to bloat and to be hungrier a little bit later. It, It gratifies like fast food. Immediately it gratifies, but what it does not do is permanently satisfy. And there's a difference. We know that between gratifying and satisfying. The obvious literal meaning here is you've come for physical food that'll only sustain you for a few hours, maybe until the next day. And that's why you've come back to me today. You want me to feed you again. You see, food that is perishable is also food with a short shelf life. It's food that perishes. It's ruined within a day or two. You know, when I was stationed in Saudi Arabia back in the Goodness gracious, ancient days. Talking about ancient words, this was back in the 70s. When I was stationed in Saudi Arabia, we would go out into the field and we would go by the souk and pick up bread. We didn't have a refrigerator. If any of y'all have lived in the Middle East, you know what I'm going to say. How long does that bread last, that flat bread last? It lasts for about a day. You wake up the next morning and it's hard as a brick. It doesn't have preservatives in it. You see, that's the idea that Jesus is saying. Many of these folks that are following Jesus, most of these folks are living to have daily bread from day to day. It's perishable. But there's a broader metaphorical meaning here, isn't there? Jesus has already talked in the Sermon on the Mount about the worldly things, that they're temporary, they're corruptible. He's talked about don't store your treasures on earth. That's temporary, but store them where? In heaven. He talks about the things that we store here, and the word picture that he uses is the treasures that we store here are consumed. They are eaten by what? Moths and rust. You see, that's the temporary stuff. 
So the fast food is a metaphor for our heavenly treasures that we toil and we work so hard for. And Jesus does not dismiss the need for the daily, the, the daily needs. He recognizes that they need to have daily bread. He understands that. As a matter of fact, in the Lord's Prayer, he's taught them, they say, teach us how to pray, Jesus. He's, he says what? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then he says what? Give us what? Daily bread. He, he knows that we need the daily bread, but he also knows who provides that daily bread. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, don't seek these things. Don't worry about what you eat, what you wear, what you drink. Your father will take care of those. But do what? Seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. And he'll provide all these things. But the point is, Jesus understands that we need those things. And he's provided them to the 5,000. And guess what? In the next chapter, Matthew 15, from 14 to 15, what does he do again? He feeds 4,000. So he understands that we have those daily needs. The real problem is he also understands that we become consumed with those problems. We become obsessed and we stay focused on the immediate need and we work and we toil drudgery day after day to meet the daily needs. And there's an elusive search for not just that which gratifies temporarily, but that which satisfies at the deepest level. We go to work every day and there's a daily grind. We toil every day to put bread on the table. That's the phrase that we use. Who is the bread earner in our family? And today in America, in a lot of families, they're double bread earners. And in some of our families with single parents, one bread earner toiling every day in the daily grind just to meet the immediate needs. It's a never-ending grudge, grudging kind of existence. What that happens, folks, is it causes us to lose sight of the bigger picture. We want something that will permanently satisfy, but there doesn't seem to be a permanent solution. We wake up tomorrow and we work tomorrow for the bread that we will have the next day, and the cycle continues. It's sort of like manna in the desert. Manna only lasted a day. On Monday, it didn't last until Tuesday. On Tuesday, it didn't last until Wednesday, except the miracle that God performed then on the Sabbath. Right before the Sabbath, they could collect it, and God allowed the manna then to endure for two days. But you see, it expired. It's like the woman at the well. She comes there, and she draws every day in the heat of the day. She's there by herself because, you know, she is probably rejected by her neighbors She's a warm woman of somewhat ill repute. She comes in the heat of the day bearing that large pot of water to take back to her family. And then Jesus offers her water. And she doesn't understand what he's talking about, you know. And then he tells her that it's water that will last. And what does she say? Oh, please give it to me. What's she talking about? She's talking about the daily grind of having to work for her living. You see, this begs these questions, this first point. We shouldn't be focused on the daily needs so much and the toil. Can anything, the first question is, can anything permanently satisfy at the deepest level and gratify, go, more than, go beyond gratifying our temporary needs? Uh, is there something that endlessly will overflow and reproduce and continue to feed us and truly fulfill us and not just fill us? Is there something that will also lift us up out of the rut of daily grinding, toiling work, the endless cycle of labor from day to day. 
You see, what this really has to do, folks, with in, in John's gospel, his presentation of the gospel really has to do with, with the curse of Adam. He goes all the way back to the third chapter of Genesis. That's what it's dealing with. It's not just the provision of food that is being discussed here. Jesus is also talking about the toil, the daily grind that we all experience. For what was the curse that he said to Adam? In Genesis, the third chapter, he said, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. By the sweat of your brow you will eat bread. Till you return to the ground and to the dust you shall return. So friends, this first point, Jesus isn't just addressing the problem of food. What he's talking about is the original curse. Is it possible that the original curse in Genesis 3 can be reversed. The second point is that God cares for us in every way. In every way He cares for us. And and He explains this basically in four principles in this passage. The first principle is that God cares for our physical needs, and we've talked about that. He's commanded them to pray for daily bread. He said, seek first the kingdom and God will provide your needs. God cares for our daily needs. And and this a little bit later in this passage, in John the sixth chapter, He says, It wasn't Moses that provided manna in the desert. It wasn't Moses that provided the daily needs. It was God. He cared for Israel's need. He provided for every one of Israel's needs in the desert. He provided not only food, but water. Not only food and water, but shelter. Not just shelter, but direction. Day and night by the fiery pillar and the cloud. He provided protection. And He provided healing. He provided for their every need. Great is thy faithfulness we sing. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed. Thy hand hath provided. Great. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord unto me. He still is the one that provides for all of our daily needs. No matter how hard we work, it is he who provides. God recognizes our need for perishable things, and he provides our daily bread. A second principle is this. God meets our permanent needs then. He goes beyond that. You see, Jesus has already addressed this issue in John, the fourth chapter, with the Samaritan woman, just not publicly. You know, he offered the Samaritan woman what? Not just water, but living water. Living water that endures. It wasn't just the well that, it wasn't the water, the cold water that came out of that hundred foot well of Jacob there at the foot of Mount Gerizim. He said, I'll offer you enduring water. And boy, she crave that. It wasn't like Moses. When at Marah, he throws the bush into the water then to purify it, that water eventually ran dry. It wasn't like later when he stood at Rephidim and he struck the rock. It wasn't like later at Meribah when he disobeyed the Lord and he struck it again. You see, that water that came out of the rock, though it flowed endlessly to feed the people of Israel, eventually was not satisfactory. You see, Jesus says, I'm going to give you more. And he has told his disciples what real food is. As the villagers are coming out of Sychar, and he's just promised the woman living water, and they're coming to find out what that is, he turns to his disciples who want him to eat lunch. And you know what he said, because we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. He looks at him and says, you know, I don't, I don't need to eat. Why? Because I have food that you don't know about. My food is to do what? It is to do the will of him who sent me. So he's looking beyond simply water and bread when he says this. 
You see, here in John's Gospel, in the sixth chapter, he brings all of this together. Not just the food, the bread that he's fed the 5,000, and not just the water that he promises the thirsty Samaritan woman, but if you've got your Bible open, look at verse 35. John 6, 35, what does he say? I am. I am. And he uses that formula that says, I'm the incarnate God. I am the what? I am the bread of life. But it's not just bread that he talks about here. He says, he who comes to me will not hunger. And he who believes in me will what? Will never thirst. So he brings it all together. There is real food. There is spiritual food, you see, that will satisfy and fulfill and not just gratify. And God the Father has provided it. God the Father has provided it through in the incarnate Son of God who is the great I Am. And He says, I am here to provide it for you. So the second principle that He deals with here is that God meets our permanent needs. There's a third principle. He, he defines then in the subsequent passage in John 6 how He meets that permanent need. You see, He meets it because He sends heavenly food. He's providing heavenly food. You see, God went beyond Moses Moses was the one that they thought provided the manna, but it wasn't. It was God. But it was God who not only provided food, He provided heavenly food. That manna that expired every day, though, was a foretaste of the heavenly food that was to come. And who is that heavenly food? It's Jesus Christ. In verse 32, if you've got your Bible open, it addresses that third principle. It is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus is the heavenly bread who fulfills God's eternal plan. God's eternal plan of redemption about which we have been speaking on Sunday evening is the scarlet thread of redemption. It comes to this point and He is reversing the curse. And God's plan is to bring eternal life through the heavenly bread. Verse number 38, look at it. For I, Jesus says, here's the connection. For I have come down from heaven, he's the heavenly bread, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And it's not just heavenly bread. It's also heavenly water, because in the next chapter, he goes back to Jerusalem the third time then, and this is the Feast of Booths. He stands in the temple and he proclaims, if you're thirsty, if anyone thirsts, come to me and do what? And to drink And he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, from his innermost being, from her innermost being, from your innermost being, will flow rivers of living water. You see, he is the one that provides both the bread and the water. So he is the heavenly fountain. He is the heavenly bread. And the fourth principle and the last principle where he cares for all of our needs is, we're told, the solution. If we will consume this bread... And if we will drink this blood, we then will be refreshed and renewed and fulfilled. You know, it's not like a smorgasbord. It's not like just deciding, well, I'll go to this church and visit here and go there. And maybe I'll think about, you know, uh, maybe being a Christian. And I'm not so sure. There are many pathways. to No, folks. There's one pathway. There's one food. There's one drink. And he doesn't invite us to come just taste at a smorgasbord and walk away. What this passage I'm about to read means is this. You must consume me. You must consume me and digest me. You must allow me to become an inherent part of who you are. 
Bring me into your life, he says in verses 54 through 58. Look at it. You're familiar with it. It's the background for which we have the Lord's Supper. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. And here it is, and I in him. You see, because that person has consumed me. As the living Father sent me, I sent, and, and I live because of the Father. So the person that eats me, the he who eats me, the she who eats me, the adult who eats me, the child who eats me, will also live because of me. This, this, friends, he says, is the bread which came out of heaven, not as the Father ate in the wilderness and died, but who eats the bread, this kind of bread will live forever. You see, Christ has become the one that wants to come into your life. He wants you to ask Him to come into your life, and you consume Him, and you walk with Him in a daily walk, very much like those on the road to Emmaus. Isn't it interesting? Their eyes do not open, and they do not recognize Jesus until He breaks bread with them, and then they realize He's the bread of life. And how their hearts did burn later when they think about that. It's that kind of fellowship that He wants to have. All the way my Savior leads, the hymn says, cheers each winding path I tread, gives me grace for every trial, feeds me with the living bread. Though my weary steps may falter, and they do, and my soul a thirst may be, gushing from the rock before me, lo, a spring of joy I see. We're going to sing that in our hymn of invitation in about five and a half minutes, okay? You see, He abides with us, and we abide with Him, and we follow His will, the will that He received from the Father, and He becomes permanent food. Verse number 27 puts it this way, food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Let me come to the last point. Not only should we not be obsessed with the temporary stuff, not only does He provide everything, but He says, work for enduring food. He gives us that command. You see, he says, don't work for the temporary food, and he doesn't use the word work again, but it's implied, work then for that food that endures. You see, Jesus provides the food for eternal life, not just physical bread and physical water, that which sustains. How is Jesus able to do this? Well, you see, Jesus has become the seed. Jesus is the seed that has been planted, that then is harvested, and becomes the bread. Hmm. You know, when the Greeks came to him and they wanted to talk to Jesus later in the Gospel of, of John in the 12th chapter, he tells us about this. You know, we, we talk about the metaphor, uh, we talk about the parable of the seed, and the seed is the sowing of the word. And we, we think of that usually as the sowing of the word of God from Scripture. But also, Jesus in the parable of the sower is talking about the sowing of which seed? He's talking about the sowing of the Word who is the living Word. And where does that seed fall? Does it fall on the road? Does it fall on stony ground? Does it fall amongst the thorns? Or does it fall on fertile soil? And he looks at the Greeks and he brings all this together. He says, I am the seed, basically. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And truly, truly, I say to you that unless a grain hmm, of wheat falls to the ground and it dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. 
And for this purpose, I came to this hour to glorify my Father's name. Wow. You see, what he's saying is, I am the seed that is being planted, and I'm going to die. I'm going to be resurrected. And when I do, I am going to produce a plentiful harvest. That was his purpose. That's why he came. He came to provide everlasting food, but it was not going to happen until he was planted and died, resurrected, and gave then abundant life through the bread of life. What does he say? He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And that then resulted in him producing the bread. And now Jesus shares this in this gospel message in the gospel of John. He shares this message about the food. The Father has given me this will, and it is my food, and I'm going to produce out of that. And John 6, this chapter, verse 39, then explains the context. You see, the benefit of all of this is, Jesus produces the bread that gives life, eternal life. This is the will, you see. It's the will that drove him. It's what he ate. This is the will of the Father. And Jesus is now telling them, I'm sharing the will of the Father with you and what I'm producing. This is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me, I will lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For you see, this is the will of the Father, that everyone who believes in me will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. So how then do we work for this food? How do we work for this food that He produces? How do you work then for the everlasting bread of life? Because He says that. Do not work for the food that perishes, but work for the food that is eternal and endures. Friends, this is not a proclamation of salvation by works. That's what the people think. In verse 28, if you look at it, it says, Okay then, what shall we do to do the works of God? Surely we can earn this kind of bread. And how does he answer in verse number 29? He says, This is the work of God. Do you want to know how to get this bread? Do you know how to do this work? He says, this is the work of God. Verse number 29, what does it say? Look at your Bible. It says that you believe in him who was sent. Jesus is making two very important points here. The first is it's not works that save. It's believing in him. It's believing in him. We're saved by the grace of God and we receive the eternal life-giving bread and the fountain of life. But we do it by believing through the grace of God. But the other thing that he's saying is that that work that we produce is not our work. The believing that we believe with, the faith that we faith with, as we pray through this season of beseeching the Lord of the harvest to send harvesters, and we talk about, Jesus says, if you pray believing that you have received it, it will be given unto you. When we pray believing, friends, I'll say it again, it is not essentially our faith, our belief that does it. It is the faith of Christ that has been planted in us. You see, it's a great work of God in us even that brings us to the point where we can believe. It's thoroughly by the grace. This morning, if you're listening online or if you're listening out there and you're wondering, how do you receive the bread of life? It's very simple. Surrender your life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and believe that He is the living Lord that gives you eternal life. But when you do that, it wasn't just because you were so creative and ingenious to generate this faith on your own power. You see, the Holy Spirit gave you the capacity to believe. Wow. In all of this, let me conclude with two things. What's happening here, I think, is that God is reversing the curse. He's reversing the curse in two ways. What he's saying is, we don't have to labor hard and toil hard every day. 
Oh, but yeah, I have to go to work. I have to earn bread. But what he's saying is this. Your work doesn't have to be toil. Your work doesn't have to be drudgery. Your work doesn't have to be something that you dread to do every day. Because guess what? God's put you in a place where you're not just working for your daily bread. You're working for whom? You're working for Him. If wherever you go, wherever you work, in school or at an office or wherever it is, if your vision is transformed so that you understand that you're working for Him and not just for daily bread, that reverses the curse. There's another way that the curse is reversed, and that is you do not have to be destined earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. The physical body will then decay, but we are offered the gift of eternal life, and it reverses the curse, obviously. He gives this promise 15 times in John's gospel, that if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will have eternal life. And then we close with the last, the very last part of that verse that we read, just a moment in, in verse 27. For on him the Father God has set his seal. What does this mean? Well, he's given us a sign, and he has secured our salvation in two ways. When Jesus was baptized, he gave us a sign. This is my son in whom I am well pleased, and he sent the Holy Spirit to seal that. And the Mount of Transfiguration, the Shekinah glory of God descended upon him, and he said, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. You see, the seal was set upon the son, and then we're given the promise in Ephesians that if we believe in the son upon whom the seal has been set by the father, the seal then is ours. Having also believed, Paul tells the Ephesians, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of your inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. We're given the promise Absolutely, that if we believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord, we ask Him to save us. We submit ourselves to Him. We receive the living bread and we drink the living water and we abide with Him. The seal of the Holy Spirit promises us that inheritance is absolutely, permanently, and totally, and finally ours. My question for you this morning is have you made that decision? Have you believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior? Is He your daily bread? Is He the one that brings refreshing springs of life to you? Let's pray. Father, we pray today that we will evermore acknowledge that you are our provider and that you sustain us every day. Help us to be strengthened in our belief that your Son is the enduring bread, the eternal life, and that your Holy Spirit will walk with us and guard and guide us and secure our salvation in eternity. And Father, help us, those that believe, as we heard the words last week to Peter, feed my sheep. That as we go forward, we will feed your sheep with this word, that your Son is the bread of life, the heavenly bread that gives life to the world. Our prayer is this morning, if someone has heard something in our message, something that we have sung, something that we have prayed this morning, something coming out of this worship service that has touched his or her heart, and they want to surrender their life to you, that they will accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and receive the eternal bread, the refreshing water, and eternal life. 
In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.